Salutation listener, welcome to another episode of A Culture Made of Algorithms, a podcast that takes a look at our media consumption, the culture it produces and the society left behind. This week's inspiration comes from an April 7th news article that outlines the plans of both Facebook and WhatsApp, two companies who are looking to take aim at slowing the ability of 5G conspiracy content. And I actually laughed a little bit there when I read it because Facebook and WhatsApp, to me, if they haven't been deregulated yet, uh, or sorry, regulated yet, I apologise, are basically the same company. So I could go on and make this whole episode about debunking this theory in particular, but I won't for a few reasons. Firstly, the research I have is not first-hand, and as this podcast is designed to contest research, I don't really want to give ammunition to contesting it. I don't want to you know, use my time up contesting that research. Secondly, I'm... I'm aware that this conspiracy relies on our fears. It relies on being spread based on what we're scared of, based on what we're anxious about, and also our lack of understanding around new technologies, which if you've looked at the history of new technologies and responses to it, being scared of new technologies and being skeptical or tying it to something sinister is nothing new. I'm also aware that I'm a part of a family and a community who is out on the front line against this virus. I'm part of a family and a community which is being disproportionately affected by the virus. So platforming this conspiracy view is counterproductive in their fight to get adequate personal protective equipment. Platforming this view also does not lessen the blow when we've suffered a loss and it doesn't help in the recovery of people who are survivors of the virus. It also doesn't soothe the pain of a grieving family. But I am going to say that by all accounts, I am biased against this theory and that's going to come through. Unlike last week where I could hide my bias behind legitimate arguments and like I said, contest evidence and arguments that was there, the amount of evidence here is overwhelmingly one-sided. There is not two sides to be had about this coronavirus conspiracy. Lastly, and I think this point is probably the most important, is that some of the evidence I have to hand regarding the conspiracy and regarding the safety and efficacy of 5G technologies is locked behind one variation of a paywall or another. And whilst I have temporary access to it with academic credentials, this isn't promised to all of you who are listening. And when the content has the potential to spark a discussion and require further investigation, I believe that everyone should have the ability to access the same information, especially if opinions are going to be formulated. Now, with that rather chonky, I like to say, disclaimer in mind, I'm going to actually go throw it out the window and talk about conspiracy theories and technological resistance more generally, because I want to start off with one of the most famous conspiracy theories and look as to why it's so attractive, so interesting and still so relevant to so many people today. And that is, of course, well, not necessarily of course, but if you're thinking what I'm thinking, it is going to be the Flat Earth Theory. Now, what we learn about it is that it's created by a man in the 1830s. His name's Parallax, which by all accounts, I think is an amazing name for someone who's actually called Samuel Robotham. And he lives in England and he publishes a leaflet which rejects the experiments and observations which go back to 206 BC or 206 BC. And these experiments detail that the Earth is at least curved. It's even round, or dare I even say spherical. 
And it's an interesting development. Why would someone reject 2,000 years of conventional understanding? After all, as an Englishman, he lives in the British Empire, and that empire has relied on maps and navigational methods and tools which assume the Earth is round. I mean, you don't get to travel the globe, ironically, with faulty navigational equipment. But anyway, we have to give him benefit of the doubt and remember the context of the 1800s. It's a time where science, particularly biology and physics, are taking shape. It's where instruments have evolved from practical applications, which we could ask our local glassmaker, our, our local scissor maker to adapt their tools a little bit and make something for us. And it's now become, or science in general, has now become this body of work which constitutes instruments which have very specific purposes. And the easiest parallel to draw here is the difference between a telescope and a microscope. A telescope could use the, the work of a glassmaker, a glasses maker, an optician, and a metal worker. And now we're talking about telescopes, you know, things have to be so precise and with such tiny details that it's actually going beyond what many even expert glassmakers are able to produce. And we also have to look at the difference as to how these two instruments get us to look at the world and the world, yeah, the worlds around us, ironically. And that is a telescope we point away from us and we look at celestial bodies literally millions of years, millions of miles away. And looking at these celestial bodies makes us feel insignificant. Yet a microscope looks inward, it looks at the things that are on our bodies and around us. And they're so small that we are to a microbe is what Jupiter is to us. And the level of complexity in which humanity was beginning to understand things was also becoming exceptionally complex. It was also removing our ability to simply observe things with our senses. Additionally, the subsequent discoveries from those, ab from those abstract observations were rejecting, or at least having the public reevaluate understood and assumed truths. For example, by the time the Flat Earth Manifesto is published, Charles Darwin had been researching what would later become evolutionary theory for three years. But I think, I think Johnny Harris, a filmmaker who details the attraction of Flat Earth theory, says it best. As scientific methods become more sophisticated, they become harder for you and me to understand. Because, as he also says, we expect to put a question out to Mother Nature and expect her to answer it. So what we can draw from this is that one of the most famous conspiracy theories of the modern age is calling for a simplification of using methods we used to. It's calling for a rejection of institutionalized truths. And as such, it has an appeal firmly set enduring parallels to our senses and what we can make out of them. It means making conclusions that are easy to attain without the need for expert knowledge or detailed study. So with this rejection of institutionalized truths and abstract knowledge it's potentially why conspiracy theories continue to exist in various forms i mean as our collective understanding and level of education increases so can the complexity of these theories i mean if you look at even lizard theory which argues that some members of the united states government are lizards it firstly means that we have to reject institutionalized truth we have to reject that we assume everyone who's in politics is human being and it means that we have to 
reject um, under assumed truths, as it were, the the things that we can't see with our eyes, I mean, and it, and it asks it asks us to rely on things that we we can see. You know, the difference in um, certain political figures and their changing appearance over time as they age essentially however what i'd like to just say is that many conspiracy theories continue to include the same aspects which make flat earth so attractive you know they encourage us to rely on our senses and make conclusions based on those observations which essentially simplify an element of our lives or the world around us which many cannot intuitively understand and asks us to make intuitive decisions so i'm actually going to look at a case of electronic voting this is less of a conspiracy and more of a more of a debate here because the case here is that elections can be decided much quicker and far more reliably if votes are counted as they're cast i mean right now the whole election night thing is somewhat of a ridiculous idea that we have um, people spend 10 hours in the polls you know go into the polls not individually but as a as an electorate we go to the polls all day cast votes and then we wait we we have no idea who's in the lead who's doing what who's where in the race who's going to be our next leader um until essentially 10 10 or so hours after the final vote has been cast and the proponents for electronic voting make the case that it has the ability to do that it has the ability to count votes as they're cast and it means that as a system it's far more reliable we can ignore the hazards which are currently presented by paper ballots you know we have the ability to skim votes off from candidates that i say we that counters don't like or simply make a human error and miscount numbers and i would say there's a case there that the number of recounts that happen each election across the world there's an excellent case for it that there is too much human error in the current system there's also the accessibility and the cost argument too. Currently, we pay thousands of people to oversee the voting process. And then we have thousands more to count that process or count the votes that have been cast. And we pay hundreds more people to oversee that process. Now, why should we spend so much money on getting the elections right when a fraction of that cost can be spent each election developing, making, maintaining and rolling up machines to do both of those jobs? We're also, in this case, ignoring the costs of both paper and ink. There's also, I keep saying this, and there's also, I love this, but there's also the, the, the ability for mildly dyslexic people to, to, to gain help in the electoral process. And when we consider screens that can yellow slightly, you know, a bit like our nighttime modes on our phones or laptops, what we end up is with a system is that text gets to stand out more I don't know if you ever know. I don't know if you know someone or if you are dyslexic, but the contrast in the between the page and the text helps people with dyslexia read. And in the case of app voting, many more disabled people have the ability to vote from the comfort of their homes without the need of a proxy, and it actually adds or gives back an element of independence that so many disabled people have fought hard for. Now, look, there's also another elephant in the room is that right now, at the time of this recording, we're in lockdown. Elections in November are looking to be postponed or cancelled in America anyway, because the risk of going outside is just far too high. 
there's too much of a risk of having a second wave at the time of this recording. And so electronic app voting will, again, essentially, I should probably start a drinking game, shouldn't I, will essentially ignore those two main issues of being able to go outside and the speed of the process. However, there are those who reject electronic voting and they claim it's far too insecure. I mean, it only takes one person to go to a booth and with the right know-how can hack a single voting booth and therefore make every vote from that moment on tainted. What if they can hack multiple booths while in their visit? Then the enti that entire constituency will have misrepresented, yeah, will have mis will be misrepresented at the highest level of, of office and highest level of governance in the country. Let's also, you know, God forbid these electronic voting booths are connected to the internet at any point because that means hackers are just going to be waiting at any opportunity to pounce and destroy democracy as we know it. Then there's also the evidence, the, the video evidence, the photographic evidence that we, if we use our senses, our observation of our eyes, our sense to see, we can see that these machines are faulty. They select candidates that the voter did not select or they get miscounts because of a glitch or a bug in the system or in the code. And so the cry there is to maintain the old ways, you know, keep the traditions that keep democracy alive. Why should we trust machines with codes that we need advanced level specialist skills to understand or decipher or let alone fix? What if there's an issue? What if the one person we've hired because we've saved so much money at this election is sick or gets into a car accident on their way to count the votes or um, their laptop is stolen or their laptop is hacked? So that means when they count the votes, the hacker can now get into the system and muddle with votes. But because we know how to spot errors in the paper system. We know how to spot miscounts. You know, it takes another count and then have more people overseeing it. We know how to count as well. I mean, we've all gone to school i'm assuming i think the, the the rate of people going to school in this country is pretty high like we've all gone to school we can count you know why don't we trust in the people you know trust in the people who make the process and then by trusting the people who make the process we trust democracy now look i'm actually a fan of the traditional method i believe that having people involved with the process of democracy reinforces the idea that politics is at the heart of every community i believe it builds the connection that communities have to the process of accountability and it reinforces the voices of people even if people don't choose to vote because they've taken part in the electoral process it reinforces the idea that they're a part of it they're a part of it by having people go out to vote each election cycle there's a form of protest whether that is for the government or against it there's a form of activism in going to the polls and even spoiling your vote there's there's a sense of activism in that how do you do that with electronic voting? How can you do that if everyone's in their homes? How do we know that there's a there's a feeling of who might win? How do you how do you gauge the 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 feeling of election day, the feeling of election night if nobody goes out there and nobody chooses to make or deliberately makes voting active or communal? Okay, now there's also the economic argument too that by paying these thousands of people to um, print, manu well, manufacture the ballot papers, to transport them to polling stations, to set up polling stations, to make sure the voting process happens smoothly, to 
make sure people transport the sealed boxes to the appropriate counting stations and you pay the people to count them and you pay the overseer oh, overseers my goodness that's a horrible word but you pay the people to over oversee <laughs> the count is done appropriately and done properly and follows procedure or even the people you pay the people to make the procedures there's an economic benefit to all of those people and their families and if the average number of household is about two to three then there are entire communities there being benefited by you know one day essentially air quote days worth of of work and therefore that money that they take home is then going to be spent at some point we'd like to think and that means another community is being benefited there's a there's an injection of capital into a community that doesn't happen with electronic voting if we streamline the process and simplify it and reduce costs in so many different ways that's just money that a community isn't going to get however to counter the counter argument we have to remember that if you want to vilify hackers in air quotes and make them a labeled community we also have to remember that there is a wide a very wide ideological difference within that community of a whole for every anarchist who wants to disable any service that they don't like there's going to be an edward snowden or a chelsea manning who will do whatever they can within their power to make a decision that they believe is for the greater good and to bring to light injustice to bring to light institutionalized corruption and whilst that argument is grandiose and looks at the the beautiful big picture of things we have to remember that there's a there's an everyday element to coding and there's people out there plugging holes in systems whether that's security whether that is in utilities whether that is on our favorite website whether that is to make sure shops remain stocked whether that's to make sure factories get their supplies and they're going to be doing this job day and night essentially what i want to say is that there are both people who would fit that air quote hacker community who are anarchists and who are defenders of democracy and liberty and freedom and essentially the whole group of hackers that we want to point fingers at is far more diverse than we assume than we're told who they are in movies and television shows i mean besides what is the difference between a hacker at a voting booth and a man who goes into a polling station with a match and sets fire to the paper ballots essentially the process is the same the result is the same that constituency does not have votes that process is going to have to take place and we also have to remember that the same systems and trial and error and effort that went into making sure that the the holes in the paper system in terms of electoral fraud or improper counting the effort is going to be put towards electronic voting we're talking about upending a tradition here there's going to be a level of scrutiny that isn't afforded to the reintroduction of ballot papers for example it means that there is a level of scrutiny that holds electronic voting at least at the beginning to a higher regard and therefore we need to be mindful that that effort is a good one it's going to weed out a lot of the issues that that present themselves and 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 will eventually come up but it doesn't matter what i've just said there because don't you see a problem here it doesn't matter how logical or enshrined in data or logic or reality or situation that my arguments are in favor of electronic voting they fundamentally do not address the concerns that the pro paper ballot version of me has i mean the conspiracies in general but ones particularly around technology rely on what i like to call a spirit of the truth you know something that allows 
arguments for the rejection of technologies to surface and resurface time and time again. And I say that being very mindful that I'm not immune from falling victim to this, these spirit of the truth arguments. Because like many people, I in a 2017 general election considered taking a pen to vote because I was afraid or I was worried at least that my paper pencil vote would be erased or miscounted or not seen or not clear enough and my voice wouldn't be heard and it was silly I mean I, it wasn't my first time voting to the polls there was enough data out there to, to debunk that theory and I realized what I was making my decision on was having voted for losing candidates in the past it wasn't until I remembered that I'd actually voted for a winning candidate once in my lifetime that my pencil vote was perfectly adequate. So what was I worrying about? Now I actually want to revisit the conspiracy I said I was going to and I wanted to avoid at the top of this episode and that is the 5G connection to cons Corona conspiracy. I just want to say that there is no relationship. Even though there is a correlation, it does not mean causation. And I'm going to say that because the argument in this conspiracy theory relies on two observable truths, two truths that you can make with your senses, with your eyes, and it doesn't need you to have expert knowledge or expert opinion or detailed information. It just says that, look, there's COVID-19 about and 5G cell towers exist. So it does. the argument doesn't matter. It doesn't care if countries such as Iran have that have been viciously hit by corona don't have 5g it doesn't matter that countries such as south korea have had 5g for years and haven't had corona until 2019 it doesn't matter that the list of acute radiation sickness that gets passed around has been strategically cropped to hide the full list of symptoms and detail it doesn't matter that radiation would cause cancer and not a virus it doesn't even matter that the 2009 research papers that were done on the safety and e efficacy of 5G have since been revisited and passed into commercial phases because they've been retested, because they've been retried, because efforts have been made to make it safer and it passes level of scrutiny that is required when we're looking at new technologies that usurp tradition. It also doesn't matter as to why we're getting 5G. It doesn't matter that in the same lockdown where we have our... our internet access restricted in the form of internet speed that we need an additional way to transmit internet data so we can keep so the system can keep up with the demand can keep up with the load that we the people are putting on it because essentially the spirit of the truth to this conspiracy is that we should be skeptical that we should reject the complicated truths that institutionalized experts who have built their their wealth of information off of other experts of institutions but basically it tells us to be skeptical of institutions it tells us to reject the complicated truths that require experts to interpret and make analysis and it calls for us to make a return to relying on our own senses our own sense of sight our own observations it asks us to reject being able to further our mind it asks us to reject our first for knowledge and replace it for one that we can make for ourselves it asks us to reject our ability to exist and to understand what is beyond ourselves. Now, look, if you've made it to this point of the podcast, the chances are you're probably interested 
in content like this. And I'd just like to make a shout out and sincere apology to Eads McKenzie and his podcast and with tech. Because over there he talks about technology and conspiracy theories and he announced the podcast days before I did. And I was astutely aware that that this topic was going to come up so soon after his brand new podcast was going to be announced. So I just want to say if you want more conspiracy theory content and technology content, go over there and check him out. Because this is the last conspiracy theory I and technology and conspiracy theory I plan to make for the foreseeable future. So yeah, go over there, check out And With Tech. That's all there is for this episode of A Culture Made of Algorithms. Next week, I want to take a look at parasocialism, or what I'd like to call our obsession with celebrity. You might know it as celebrity worship. Now, in the meantime, I want you to remember, don't just rely on your senses, but learn to rely on the knowledge and experience of not only your peers, but those who can expand your knowledge of the world that goes far beyond yourself. Take care and stay safe.